are live. Welcome to another episode of the PBL Podcast, also known as Politics and Brown Liquor. You can find us on our social media platforms under the handle, the PBL Podcast. And again, that's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I do a lot of TikToks. Do follow me on TikTok. Again, all under the handle, the PBL Podcast. You can also find us online at our website, thepblpodcast.com, where I put all our show notes and all the articles that I refer to are on our website, thepblpodcast.com. And of course, you can sponsor us through patreon.com slash thepblpodcast by buying a membership anywhere from a dollar, three dollars, five dollars, seven dollars, even ten dollars. And this helps promote the show and keep us going and for your money we give you the video of the show and any other bloopers or behind the scenes programs that we're doing you may even see my dog on there so follow us again at the pbl podcast visit us online the pblpodcast.com and support us at patreon.com slash the pbl podcast as i was preparing for the show this uh today and this is going to be on a thursday is this when this first airs and we're looking at naming this thirsty thursdays you know you go around office parks all around america and every thursday they'll have sometimes what's called thirsty thursdays kind of get you geared up for the weekend you know you've got through wednesday hump day you're almost at the weekend want to unwind a little bit so i thought today instead of doing all the politics that is just dominating our world right now with the ro- the pro- the riots, the protesters, left, right, what have you. I thought it'd be nice to have a little diversion. Now, our website, the PBL podcast, in the PBL part is politics and brown liquor. That's our show. And when we started this show, we talked about politics while sipping on brown liquor, which we do often, which I'm going to do right now, take a little sip of some brown liquor in honor of the PBL podcast. And in honor of what I'm going to talk about today. Today, it's about politics and liquor. Not always brown liquor, but politics and liquor. Now, if you throw in a cigar there, right, you've got a perfect trifecta mix. Politics, liquor, and cigars? I mean, you don't get more stereotypical than that. So what I want to do today... It's let's have some fun. Let's talk politicians and alcohol trivia. So there's a lot of stuff here as I was researching for the show uh, that I found that I had no idea. And also there's a, a, um, a folklore myth that I'm going to dispel regarding Joe Kennedy later on in the show. But as I was getting ready for the show today, I was going to do stuff on Portland riots. And I'm like, oh, let's just have some fun today. So... Let's get into it. Let's talk about politicians and alcohol, because you know there's some interesting stories there. We're going to go all the way back, all the way back to the beginning of America, and I'm just going to give you some trivia. Hey, there's no writing down the answers. There's no keeping score. This is just historical information. I don't want to say facts, because... You know, I'm pulling all this stuff online, and we all know how it is when you pull stuff online. Could be off. So let me get into it. Politician out, politicians and alcohol. <clears throat> Did you know Paul Revere is reported to have had two drinks of rum before making his historic ride? Now, 
Personally, I probably would have had to have more than two drinks of rum, but Paul Revere is reported to have had two drinks of rum before the ride of the British are coming, the British are coming, the British are coming. Now, Patrick Hendry, did you know he was a bartender? I had no idea. Now, as we go back even further before the Declaration of Independence and before America forming itself as a nation, my family, my historical background is uh, originally family lines from the Netherlands. Um, I have a great, 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 I don't know how many G's you got to put in front of that grandfather who came over here as a soldier from the Netherlands and settled in what is now, or what was then called a New Netherland colony, which is now New York, New Jersey area. And he had a son who had a son who actually became a brewer. And he went by the name, you know, back then, people's job profession became part of their name. He, was, he went by John the Brewer. So back in the day, this is not surprising that Patrick Henry was a bartender because alcohol was so important to society back then. But I want to get more into that later. Let's let's get some more fun facts. Thomas Jefferson, who drafted the declar de he drafted the Declaration of Independence in a tavern. I had no idea until I researched this. Thomas Jefferson actually our Declaration of Independence was drafted in a tavern over most likely beer <laughs> that's just amazing so and, and get this every delegate who signed the declaration of independence was an alcohol drinker now that's not a surprise now back in those days remember uh there was not sanitation like we have sanitation today so water had a lot of bacteria in it alcohol killed the bacteria so people drank alcohol sometimes more so than water i'll have a fun fact about that coming up in the show as well the first to sign the Declaration of Independence, John Alcohol, was an alcohol dealer. I had no idea. So after they finished drafting the U.S. Constitution, the 55 delegates held a party. They drank eight bottles of whiskey, 60 bottles of claret, four, 54 bottles of um, Madeira. Um, I'm bad with words. Y'all know that. Madeira, M-A-D-E-I-R-A. Please... You can email me at politicsandbrownlicker at gmail.com and correct me. How do you say that? I don't know. 22 bottles of port, 12 bottles of beer, and 8 bottles of hard cider. As I was doing my research, hard cider comes up a lot. I mean, they drank a lot of hard cider back then. Uh, they also had several bowls of alcoholic punch. And the bowls were so big that ducks could swim in them. So this is after they drafted the U.S. Constitution. It was party time. <laughs> so uh, does, is it any wonder that alcohol is so in, in, in our society and a part of who we are? I mean, think about this. After they finished drafting the U.S. Constitution, they got wasted. So here goes some more. Martha Washington began happy hour at three o'clock in the afternoon. She served cocktails until dinner in the evening. So, you know, by dinner time, they were just sloshed. So go Martha, though. What a great hostess, right? She, can we say she was the hostess with the mostest? George Washington. I had no idea about this until again, I'm bringing up this information for the show. George Washington was the largest distiller in the new U.S., in 1799, his distillery operated year-round. It produced almost 11,000 gallons of whiskey. There were about 3,500 distilleries at the time in Virginia alone. His was truly enormous. I, did you know that? Some of you listening knew that because there's a lot of history buffs. 
that listen to the show. But I had no idea George Washington was, was a distiller. Thomas Jefferson became the new nation's first major wine authority and promoter. Apparently, Thomas Jefferson liked the wine. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin all made alcoholic beverages. Are you beginning to see why alcohol is so embedded in our society (laughs) when our founding fathers were just partay? President Van Buren was born in his parents' tavern. Interesting little tidbit. So long before he became president, Abraham Lincoln held a liquor license and sold whiskey in several places. One of his licenses, dated 1833, can be seen in Bardstown, Kentucky. It's at the Oscar Getz Museum of Whiskey History. Again, I'm learning as I'm researching all this is I there's two things about Lincoln that I didn't know. One, that his family sold booze at their local store. And two, he was primarily a teetotaler. As he got into his presidency, he did not drink uh, during his presidency. And I'm going to get into presidents and their drinking habits a little later in the podcast. Lincoln said, it has long been recognized that the problems with alcohol relate not to the use of a bad thing, but to the abuse of a good thing. So with that said, people, drink responsibly. So if you're driving, don't drink. Mm, let's drink responsibly since we're talking about alcohol. So you may want to hold off on this podcast and, <laughs> and maybe wait and listen to the rest of this while you've got maybe a beverage in hand. It's a little more fun that way. But by all means, keep listening. President Lincoln was told that General Grant was drinking whiskey while leading troops. Lincoln is reported to have said, find out the name of the brand so I can give it to my other generals. That's amazing. By the way, General Grant apparently was quite the drinker. Yeah, so we'll get into that also when we talk about him as president. President Hayes' wife, Lucy, is best known as Lemonade Lucy. As a temperance supporter, temperance supporter, she prohibited any alcohol in the White House. Uh, the president approved of this, President Hayes, because it won him votes. <clears throat> National prohibition in the U.S. lasted from 1920 to 1933. The father of Prohibition, Congressman Andrew Volstead, was voted out of office soon after Prohibition went into effect. That must have been the tipping point when America started to realize, wait a minute, what did we just do? We just outlawed alcohol. And I'm going to get into Prohibition also a little later in the show as well. But uh, I thought that was pretty funny. Congressman Andrew Volstead, I guess this is where the Volstead Act came from, was voted out of office soon after Prohibition went into effect. A sign of things to come, if there ever was one. The best-known bootlegger selling illegal alcohol in the House of Representatives was George L. Cassidy. He was called the man in the green hat. So he was a member of Congress bootlegging. Cocktails were sometimes drunk in Congress between sessions on Prohibition issues. Uh During Prohibition, they were drinking cocktails. Now, here's a little unknown fact about Prohibition. Again, as I was researching this, I came across this as well. During Prohibition in America, and I'm going to get into more details on Prohibition a little later. During Prohibition in America, it, it wasn't illegal to drink alcohol. It was illegal to make it and distribute it. But if you had it, it actually wasn't illegal to drink it. 
which I thought was pretty interesting. So if you think about it, in this bullet, cocktails were sometimes drunk in Congress before sessions on prohibition issues. They weren't violating the law. Now, it may have been a little hypocritical, or okay, maybe a lot hypocritical, but they weren't violating the law. All right, on to some more facts or fun facts. President Warren Harding had voted against prohibition as a senator. However, as president, he served alcohol in the White House. Yeah, that's hypocrisy <laughs> rampant during prohibition, right? Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia of New York City mailed winemaking instructions to his constituents. Guess he wasn't a big one on prohibition, right? The Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives owned an illegal still. This is during prohibition. Now, it doesn't say who the speaker was, so I apologize. I don't have the information. I know a lot of you are asking, but the Speaker of the House of U.S. Representatives during, during Prohibition owned an illegal still. Franklin Roosevelt promised to end Prohibition. This helped him win the presidency in 1932. So from 1920 to 1933, uh, we had Prohibition. Couldn't buy or sell alcohol in the United States. And uh, when we get into a little bit of the Prohibition, this created a criminal element like America had never seen yet. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and I'm not a big fan of his, understood that maybe it's time to move on. In fact, I believe uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt once said, it's America needs a drink, and then Prohibition soon ended. So what, and there it is, this is the next bullet, what America needs now is a drink, said President Roosevelt at the end of Prohibition. So we know Prohibition, <clears throat> you know, it was one of the amendments and it was one of the amended amendments because Prohibition was a horrible experiment. So, um, but <laughs> just, you know, the hypocrisy of politicians during Prohibition, uh, you know, not surprising. We see the same thing today. Um, moving on, some more, more, more information here. Kansas maintained statewide prohibition after national prohibition. The state attorney general insisted that drinking on an airliner flying in federal airspace over Kansas was illegal. Isn't that just like a politician? That's because Kansas had statewide prohibition. He insisted that Kansas go all the way up and all the way down. Now, it goes on to say he was ridiculed in legal circles. Well, yeah, hello. But it was funny about Prohibition. After Prohibition ended, it was basically given to the states to decide. So we had several dry, dry states up until, I believe it was the 60s. But very interesting that it was a federal law that ushered in Prohibition, a federal law that got rid of Prohibition, and it went to states' issues. So... Very interesting. A couple other bullets, some more bullets here, getting into some just fun facts on politicians and alcohol. Now we're going to World War II or around the 1940s. Adolf Hitler was one of the best-known alcohol abstainers in the world. However, Sir Winston Churchill, his successful enemy, uh, was one of the best-known heavy drinkers in the world. Apparently, Churchill knew how to tie one on. Churchill was a very, very heavy drinker, apparently. A uh, President Carter's mother, now we're in the 70s, said, I'm a Christian, but that doesn't mean I'm a long-faced square. I like a little bourbon. Kind of like President Carter's mother a little more now, don't you? President Carter's brother, Billy, a lot of you know this, maybe some of you don't, launched and promoted Billy Beer. Now, Billy Beer was, uh, I, I, when I was a kid when that came out, but from what I understand, Billy Beer was god-awful, just 
awful. All right, several former presidents and their favorite drinks, and I'm going to get into other presidents and their favorite drinks. Herbert Hoover, martini, Franklin Roosevelt, scotch, brandy, or dirty martini, Harry Truman, bourbon, there you go, brown liquor, Richard Nixon, rum and coke, contrary to him being a Quaker, by the way, Lyndon Johnson, scotch and soda, not a surprise, Gerald Ford, gin and tonic. So, President Johnson, he would ride around his Texas ranch in an open convertible in hot weather. He drank his scotch and soda out of a large white plastic foam cup. Periodically, Johnson would slow down and hold his left arm outside the car, shaking the cup of ice. And a secret secret service agent would run up to the car, take the cup, and go back to the station wagon. Yeah, so he was using the Secret Service to <laughs> get him drinks. Not what they're there for, people. Uh, the, they're, uh, see, it slowly followed, the station wagon slowly followed the president's car. Their other agent would refill it with ice, scotch, and soda as the first agent trotted behind the wagon. Then the first agent would run the refilled cup up to LBJ's outreached hand, all while the president's car moved slowly. I'm sorry. This is just another reason not to like LBJ. I am no fan of LBJ. If you listen to this podcast, I I think he was an abhorrent individual. And this just goes to show what a complete a-hole he was. All right. A couple other bullets here. The National Institutes of Health paid for a study. It found moderate drinkers were much less likely to have heart attacks and abstainers. And we still see some of that. Um, research today. It prohibited the researchers from publishing results. It claimed the findings were socially undesirable. So the National Institute of Health paid for the study, found that modern drinking was actually, eh, you know, not bad for the heart. I mean, God gave us alcohol for a reason, and they didn't want to release the study because the findings during the time were socially undesirable. So the Alcohol, Tobacco, Tax, and Trade Bureau restricts First Amendment free speech. It, it prohibit alcohol producers from distributing any scientific medical facts on al- health effects of moderate drinking. And again, there's study after study after study that moderate drinking is not a bad thing, but you know the definition of moderate drinking sometimes gets a little skewed, and people just kind of take a little too much. All right, one last bit here. Uh, <clears throat> so trivia. This is all just trivia, and you know trivia is a plural of the Latin trivium. So more than one bar trivium becomes alcohol word trivia. So Thomas Jefferson drafted the American Declaration of Independence in a tavern is a politicians and alcohol trivium. So this collection of politicians and alcohol trivia, uh, so it should be politics, politicians and alcohol trivia is fun. All right, so this is just some things that uh, I found were kind of fascinating, just fun. When you're talking about politician alcohol, again, it just goes to speak to uh, our nation and its relationship with alcohol. So uh, there are presidents throughout time have been drinkers. So what are the presidents, uh, you know, in history, what are their drinking preferences? So let's go over a few of these. So uh, George Washington, as I mentioned earlier, had his distillery, but his preferred drink was dark porter. Man, dark porter, that's some tough stuff, man. That's very heavy, heavy stuff. John Adams, his preferred drink was hard cider. I find that interesting. Like I said earlier, I find a lot of hard cider. Uh, but all accounts, the second president of the U.S. loved his alcohol. In fact, he started almost every morning with a hard cider. Every morning with a hard cider. So, wow. <clears throat> Thomas Jefferson, his preferred drink was wine. Well, let's see. James Madison, 
Champagne. Very interesting. Uh, this is a book by Will Weber's book. James Madison once said champagne was the most delightful wine when drank in moderation, but that more than a few glasses always produced a headache the next day. Quote, unquote. So, you know, as the article goes on, tell us something we didn't know. James Monroe, his preferred drink, French red wine. John Quincy Adams, preferred drink, Spanish Madeira. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Please, you guys can correct me. Politics around like or gmail.com. M-A-D-E-I-R-A-A. Uh, M-A-D-E-I-R-A. Uh, <clears throat> Andrew Jackson. Whiskey. There you go. Now we're getting into some hard stuff. Brown liquor. Go, Andrew Jackson. Uh, one of the most polarizing presidents in history, Andrew Jackson, made, sold, and, of course, drank whiskey. So he made and sold it. Martin Van Buren preferred drink whiskey. William Henry Harrison preferred drink hard cider. Again, with the hard cider. So according to History.com, a pro-Democrat newspaper mocked William Henry Harrison back in 1840 by claiming he was too old to be president. The paper said, give him a barrel of hard alcoholic cider and a pension of $2,000 a year, and he will sit the remainder of his days in a log cabin. Hmm. You know, politics has always been nasty, ladies and gentlemen. John Tyler, his preferred drink, champagne, another champagne president. Um, James Polk, James K. Polk, wine. Zachary Taylor, whiskey. Millard Fillmore, Med again, Madeira. Uh, Franklin Pierce, everything. Now, Franklin Pierce, according to uh, Will Weber's his book, nod as the drunkest president in American history. According to the writer, Pierce drank a lot of everything, quote unquote, and once said, after leaving office, what can an ex-president of the United States do except get drunk? Subsequently, he died of cirrhosis of the liver at the age of 65. James Buchanan's preferred drink, sherry, a refined man. Abraham Lincoln's preferred drink, water. Now, what I've learned about Lincoln doing this is during his presidency, he did not drink. Uh, well, he said, honestly, if he did drink, he did so very rarely. And he did a younger man, but he was poor, for the most part, a teetotaler. He drank water in his presidency. Andrew Johnson, whiskey. Ulysses, Ulysses S. Grant, champagne, which is interesting because uh, Grant was labeled a lightweight drinker by Will Weber. That doesn't exactly fit the stereotype stereotype of a gruff war general so though other sources note he was an avid drinker during his days as a general but evidently grant had low drinking tolerance by the time he got to the oval office which is fascinating because there's a lot of stories where dude just drank like crazy even during battle and i went back to what i said earlier that lincoln said find out what he's drinking so he can send it to his other generals rutherford b hayes preferred drink was non-alcoholic another teetotaler by the way his was the wife lucy uh, was the teetotaler so she didn't she believed in personal abstinence from alcohol drinks as such she banned alcohol and smoking among other things from the white house when hayes was president and that's how she earned the nickname lemonade lucy james garfield preferred drink beer there you go every man president right beer chester a arthur ale I guess we could also say beer. Grover Cleveland preferred drink beer. Benjamin Harris preferred drink tea. Benjamin learned more, leaned more toward God than demon alcohol, Will Weber wrote. Well then, unlike many presidents before him, Benjamin Harris stayed away from booze, according to foodtimeline.org. Harrison's wife, homie custom, wife's homie custom was to serve hot, clear soup 
at our White House teas and receptions. Grover Cleveland's preferred drink, beer. Uh, William McKinley preferred drink, rye whiskey. In addition to having an Alaska mountain named after him, a polarizing topic in the news last year when President Barack Obama, this is a few years ago, I apologize, renamed the mountain Denali to honor Native American culture, William McKinney also had alcoholic drinks named after him. So this is per Will Weber again, where I'm citing most of this. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, mint julep. That one really surprised me because here's Theodore Roosevelt, the outdoors man, the men's man, and he's drinking mint juleps. I'm not even sure if I ever had a mint julep myself. William Howard Taft, champagne, Woodrow Wilson, scotch, probably drank a lot of it to do kind of, well, we'll get into politics on this. So Wilson loves scotch. His campaign song, Wilson, That's All, actually came from a brand of whiskey that was popular early in the 20th century. Warren G. Harding, whiskey. Calvin Coolidge, Toki wine. Calvin Coolidge was not much of a drinker, but he was very fond of Toki wine. Herbert Hoover was wine and martinis. Now, FDR, again, uh, we're now out of prohibition, assorted cocktail. As a president who signed the Cullen Harris Act, bringing about a repeal to prohibition in the United States, perhaps it's no surprise that Franklin Delano Roosevelt enjoyed a good drink from time to time. So, you like the cocktails, um, gin-based martinis, whiskey-based Manhattans, as well as Bermuda rum swizzlers. Harry S. Truman's was bourbon. You know, that fits Harry S. Truman. Dwight D. Eisenhower, scotch. Yeah, that fits him. This one I found interesting. John F. Kennedy, Bloody Mary. Not much of a drinker. I really was surprised. So those who, and here where it goes on in the article, those who enjoy drinking a Bloody Mary are probably aware that they can either be delicious or terrible with very little in between, uh, depending on where you order one. So you to, they have to have, they have to be done right, and it's safe to assume JFK was only was served the best of the best. But you, they're absolutely right. Bloody Marys are the god awful, or you know, not half bad. I'm not a big Bloody Mary fan. LBJ, as we mentioned earlier, a whiskey scotch. Cuddy Sark was the brand he most liked, and Richard M. Nixon. Uh, expensive red wine and Richard Nixon from what I've read in my research was actually quite the drinker that he would sometimes uh, get drunk and call his staff uh, in a drunken state now someone mentioned to me as I was researching this article wasn't he a Quaker well yeah he was he was raised a Quaker but Quakers were able to drink they just couldn't drink during the Quaker meetings Uh, Gerald R. Ford martini George H.W. Bush would be vodka martinis Barack Obama. Now, this one I don't believe. This one, it says beer. Yeah, we saw the beer summit, but personally, I don't believe that he was a beer drinker. I don't think he was a drinker at all, to be honest with you. Jimmy Carter was white wine. And although Jimmy Carter would drink white wine for the occasional toast at events, he was far from an avid drinker, imbibing alcohol only sparingly. In fact, Jimmy Carter um, banned most alcohol from the White House. Ronald Reagan, a wine drinker. Uh, Bill Clinton would be something called snake bite, which I found very interesting. Bill Clinton's favorite alcohol drink is one part cider and one part lager mixed in equal volumes. Leave it to Bill Clinton to have a drink called snake bite. You think that has anything to do with Hillary? George W. Bush, Diet Cola, however, younger prior to, uh, he stopped drinking at the age of 40. And prior to that, he was a pretty heavy drinker. But while in office, Diet Cola and Donald Trump, Diet Coke. Now, Donald Trump 
is the only president that we have had that's never had alcohol. The man has literally never drank an ounce of alcohol. And if you know this story, his brother, Fred, died of alcoholism. And uh, Donald Trump, he claims, you know, a lot of people I know don't believe him. I do. Claims that he's never had alcohol and has never taken any drugs. So there are, there's another article uh, that I'm going to go over, teetotalers in chief. And Donald Trump, he may be a lot of things, but booze hound isn't one of them. In fact, while Democrat nominee Hillary Clinton has made no secret of her love for a good cocktail when she was running against him in 2016, Trump allegedly has never had a drop to drink. And subsequently, I'm not sure where Biden is right now. I've not seen any stories on that. I would think Biden right now, given his cognitive uh, decline, I would hope they're not feeding him any alcohol. But if they did, I'd peg the guy as uh, a whiskey or scotch drinker. But here are the teetotalers that uh, have held the White House. Millard Fillmore, Abraham Lincoln, Rutherford B. Hayes, Theodore Roosevelt, although he had drinks occasionally, William Taft, which was really surprising because the man weighed around 350-plus pounds, uh, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was one of the few modern presidents to openly declare a dry White House, allowing only wine at formal events. I'm sorry, I just got to say it. Doesn't isn't that typical of a Democrat? It, it, it's 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 not dry if there's wine. All right, I'm sorry, <laughs> it's just it's not dry. Uh, George W. Bush he, again, as we just discussed. He's an alcoholic in his younger years, but he never hid the fact that he was a reformed drinker after getting a DUI in 1976 and briefly losing his license. I think at the age of 40 is when he said he stopped drinking. But Trump, Trump is the absolute only president we have ever had that's never had alcohol, not even a drop. Just amazing to me. So let's talk about prohibition a little bit. In fact, let me take a quick break, um, come back and finish up this topic. I got some, I want to talk about prohibition. And then also, which is very interesting, there's a myth out there that I bought into uh, up until researching it for this episode that I always believed that I'm going to dispel once we come back from the break. Even though this is a presidential election, there are many more candidates on the ballot besides the president. So go to Ballot Ready for a nonpartisan guide to your entire ballot. From there, you can compare candidates based on the stances on issues, biography, or endorsements, and then save your choice to use when you vote by mail or in the voting booth. You can even request your absentee ballot or make a plan to vote early or on election day. This election matters. So make sure you are ready and you vote and you vote informed. So visit go to ballot.org, enter your address Make sure that you vote and vote informed. All right. Welcome back to the second segment of the PBL podcast, also known as Politics and Brown Liquor. And again, you can find us on social media with the handle, the PBL podcast. You can catch us online at the PBLpodcast.com. And of course, support us at Patreon by purchasing a membership from anywhere from a dollar three dollars five dollars seven dollars ten dollars and what this will give you for your money is you'll get videos of the podcast you'll get some bloopers you'll get some other stuff that we throw in there as well so please do support the pbl podcast at patreon.com slash the pbl podcast our topic today is politics and well liquor so let's get back into the uh, what I discussed earlier, I said I was going to bring up, is prohibition. 
Prohibition, you know, we, we all read about Prohibition in, in school, or we know somewhat about it, but Prohibition, it started in 1920, lasted till 1933, so let me go over some quick facts uh, on Prohibition. An article that I'm going to reference here, it's the great, or a great social experiment, a brief guide to Prohibition, and again, this will be in the show notes as well as the other topics that I discuss. So, Prohibition, described by American President Herbert Hoover as a great social and economic experiment. Remember that word economic uh, later on as we get into this conversation. Prohibition, a ban which prevented alcohol from being made, transported, or sold. It was established across the United States January of 1920 and again was in force for 13 years. So let's talk about how successful it was at its aims. And we, who were the gangsters who profited from bootleg business during the Prohibition era? In fact, I want to get right into the gangster piece. You know, if you look at the history of America, and you know, this is where a lot of movies came out. Um, Prohibition, when you outlawed alcohol, all it did was create a new industry. It created a black market industry for alcohol. And who profits from black market industries? Well, criminals do. So you think about the experiment, this great experiment, right? Or this great social experiment. Apply this to a lot of things that we're talking about in today's world. One, drugs, right? Illegal drugs. We've got a drug problem in our country. There's no doubt about that. There are way too many people using illegal drugs and abusing illegal drugs. And because it's outlawed, well, there's violence. There's gangsters. There's, there's, you know, cartels. If it wasn't outlawed, what would happen to the drug trade? Prohibition is a great kind of case study of what would happen if we legalize drugs. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I say it often. You want to destroy an industry, you let government come in and regulate it, and they'll destroy it. So let government go regulate it. We're seeing that in Colorado when they legalized marijuana there. All of a sudden, the college kids were complaining that the potency of the THC wasn't as good. This is what happens when government gets involved. But let's get back to the topic at hand. What was prohibition? Prohibition was an attempt to outlaw the production and consumption of alcohol in the United States. Uh, The call for prohibition began primarily as a religious movement in the early 19th century. The state of Maine passed the first state prohibition law in 1846. And the Prohibition Party, I had no idea there was even a Prohibition Party. The Prohibition Party was established in 1869. The movement gained support in the 1880s, 1890s from social reformers who saw alcohol as a cause of poverty, industrial accidents, the breakups of families. And true, alcohol is abusive. If one abuses it, it can destroy and it has destroyed families. Others associated alcohol with urban immigrant ghettos, criminality, and political corruption. So in other words, alcohol became the boogeyman. So groups such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union formed in 1874 and the Anti-Saloon League uh, founded in 1893 became powerful crusading forces. And by 1916, 26 of the then 48 states had already passed prohibition laws. Remember, prohibition was passed in January 1920. So by 1916, 26 of the 48 states, we're only at 48 at this time, already had prohibition laws, states' rights issues, ladies and gentlemen. So when America... With America's entries into the First World War in 1917, prohibition was linked to grain conservation. Okay, now we're starting to try to find reasons to 
uh, limit alcohol sales because we needed to preserve grain for the war effort. It was also aimed at brewers, many of whom were of German descent. Okay, my family was part of that, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, it wasn't actually. I'm 62% from German uh, heritage. But my family came over from the Netherlands, and one of them was eventually a brewer. John the Brewer was his name. This is back in 1670s, 1680s. Uh, and Prohibition became fully established with the ratification of the 18th Amendment in 1919 and its enforcement from January 1920 onward. Described by Herbert Hoover, U.S. President from 1923-1933, as the Great Social and Economic Experiment... Prohibition had a considerable impact on American society before its repeal in 1933. So point number two, when did Prohibition come into force? Well, as I mentioned, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution prohibited the manufacture, sale, or transportation of alcohol. It was adopted by both Houses of Congress in December of 1917 and ratified by the necessary two-thirds of the states on 16 January 1919. So they used a war effort as a way to ratify this, because World War II was already in play and they needed to preserve grain. The amendment was implemented by the National Prohibition Act, known as the Volstead Act, after Andrew Volstead. As I mentioned earlier, he was voted out of office soon after Prohibition went away. The chair of the House Judiciary Committee and a leading prohibitionist. In October of 1919, under the terms of the act, Prohibition began on 17th January of 1920. The act defined, intoxicate, defined intoxicating liquor as anything that contained one half of 1% alcohol by volume. This would allow them to continue to use alcohol in like, for medicinal purposes. So uh, products that had small amounts of alcohol were okay. Bullet number three. How was prohibition enforced and how successful was its enforcement? Now, a lot of you already know this, right? It ended, so we know it wasn't that successful. So the 18th Amendment and Volstead Act were more easily passed than enforced. Big surprise there. Doctors were allowed to prescribe alcohol for medicinal purposes and to purchase it themselves for laboratory use. Hmm, interesting, right? And many interpreted these terms loosely. Go figure. Mm. So the people that were connected to the medical community, well, they had access to alcohol. The sale of sacramental wine also rose significantly in early years of prohibition, because that was allowed. So here's what was I found most interesting. The private possession or consumption of alcohol itself was not illegal. And as many Americans continued to demand alcoholic beverages, Mm, here we go. Criminals stepped in to meet the demand by illegitimate means. So where previously there had been bars and saloon, there were now illegal drinking dens known as speakeasies or blind pigs, which by the end of the decade were numbered at an estimated 200,000. And people also took to producing their own illicit booze or moonshine, as we know now, bathtub gym or whole brew beer. So what did Prohibition do? It created an industry. It created the gangsters that we know and love so much from our gangster movies. So enforcement of the legislation proved enormously difficult for local police forces and federal bureaus. Uh, the, the, the bureau numbered at around 3,000 agents. So that's 3,000 agents for the whole United States who had to police the coastal frontier and land borders with Canada and Mexico to prevent smuggling. 
as well as investigate the illegal internal production and transportation of alcohol in the country as a whole. We have that problem now with legal drugs. So again, you can look at prohibition as a case study for drugs right now. And I know there's a lot of people that do not agree with me that legalizing drugs is a viable option. But if you want to destroy an industry, I'm just saying, let government get involved. Back to the article. Often poorly paid federal agents and police were susceptible. Susceptible. I messed up that word. They were given to corruption, as were some judges and politicians. No, really. And this is my favorite part. In Chicago. Hmm. Look at Chicago today. In Chicago, it was claimed that half the police force was in the pay of gangsters. And in New York, seven thousand arrests under the prohibition laws produced only seventeen convictions. So Chicago, <laughs> Chicago's just always, you know, you go back to the politics, boss tweed. I mean, Chicago's just always been a corrupt city. And look what's going on in Chicago today. Does it really surprise anyone? I mean, no, it doesn't. If you're surprised Chicago has had a criminal problem for generations, then you just aren't paying attention. So anyway, a number of the states, uh, the states and cities simply, simply forbade local police uh, forces from investigating breaches of the Volstead Act. So a lot of them just turned a blind eye. So while we had prohibition in this country, people were still drinking. <clears throat> but however, some agents did become famous for their pursuit of bootleggers. Uh, Izzy Einstein and Moe Smith in New York made over 5,000 arrests between 1920 and 1925. Uh, this is also Elliot Ness with his hand-picked group of the Untouchables, as we know from the movie The Untouchables, pursued and eventually helped arrest leading gangster Al Capone. Bullet number four. Who were the gangsters who profited from illegal bootleg alcohol business? Crime offered a gangster's quick route to success, wealth, and status. There was a lot of money to be made here. Rather than being a fairly small-scale, localized affair, crime became increasingly national and organized, incorporating business people and politicians and new criminal syndicates and combinations that manufactured, imported, and transported illegal bootleg alcohol sold in speakeasies. We all know this because we've seen the movies, we've read it in the history books, we know that there was gang violence based on alcohol and bootlegging. In fact, the leading gangster of the time, Al Capone, he was described by the head of the Chicago Crime Commission as public enemy number one at the time. Now, Al Capone actually said that he's taking out the competition to lower the crime. <laughs> so his his theory, his logic was, hey, I'm helping lowering the crime by killing off the competition. Now, Capone helped to build up a business worth $60 million based on the manufacture and transportation of alcohol, as well as gambling and prostitution. $60 million back in the 1920s was a heck of a lot more money than $60 million is today. And $60 million today... It's also a lot of money. There was a war between Capone gang and that of another monster, Dion O'Banion, and that resulted in a lot of deaths, including O'Banion himself. So, and of course, he was succeeded by other gangsters, Jaime Weiss and George Bugs Moran, who continued the rivalry with Capone. So people just continued to die, all because of prohibition. There were hundreds of gangland killings in Chicago in the 20s. Again, we've all seen the movies. The most notorious incident was... Valentine, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Although not directly involved, it was assumed Capone was responsible. So, and so we know that prohibition bred and created this criminal element. <clears throat> so, again, 
it's a case study today for the war on drugs. The war on drugs is a failure. I'm not bringing up prohibition to get, to 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 you know try to bring up the war on drugs and advocate that we legalize drugs, but you know there are parallels here. Bullet number five: Who were the other leading gangsters? Dutch Schultz, born Arthur Flegenheimer, Flegenheimer became one of the most powerful gangsters in New York. It was often compared to. Um, Capone. Also, luckily, Giuliano came up. Uh, there was also Arnold Rothstein, who was a New York gangster and a professional gambler who ran gambling housing houses in New York City, Saratoga Springs, and Long Beach, uh, as well as operating a racing stable, a real estate business, and a bail bond firm, which really surprised me. And he was also the one who had allegedly been behind the fix of the 1919 World Series. So, prohibition brought up a ton of of illegal activity. It created this gangster class that, think about it, Capone's empire was worth upwards of $60 million back in the 1920s. Bullet number six, what were the overall effects of prohibition and why did it fail? During prohibition, the consumption of hard liquor probably dropped by as much as 50%. It's only 50%. I I know a lot, but still there were 50% of people that were able to drink and other alcoholic beverages by about one third. So hard liquor, 50%. Other alcoholic beverages, about one-third. Now, some of the effects, the number of deaths due to cirrhosis, the liver fell considerably, but was offset by some extent by deaths caused by drinking drinking adulterated alcohol, so bad alcohol. However, in 1929, Mabel Walker Willebrandt, former assistant U.S. attorney general who had headed prohibition prosecution, conceded that alcohol could be purchased at almost any hour of the day, either in rural districts, the smaller towns, or the cities. At the time, Prohibition almost completely destroyed the brewing industry. At the same time, Prohibition almost destroyed the brewing industry, causing a huge loss in jobs. Wait for it. It also resulted in a loss of $11 billion in tax revenues and cost $300 million to enforce. This is back in the 20s. May not seem like a lot of money now in government standards, but that was a lot of money. So the reasons for failure of the prohibition seem clear. The, the, the report of the Commission on Law Observances and Enforcement in 1931 pointed to the widespread police and political corruption. So police and political corruption, one of the reasons it failed, combined with a lack of public will. Public didn't want this. While the number of arrests and drunkenness had initially fallen, they soon rose again, and the increase in crime associated with prohibition only strengthened the demands for repeal. So, yet the issue left the nation divided. Uh, <clears throat> expressing his opposition to prohibition was one of the factors that prevented Al Smith, Democrat governor of New York, from being elected to the presidency in 1928. He opposed prohibition. He didn't get traction and get elected. Uh, opposition to prohibition was strongest in urban areas in the north, weakest in rural areas in the south. However, the onset of the Great Depression following the Wall Street crash in 1929 further weakened the case for prohibition, you think? As newly elected President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said in 1932, what America needs now is a drink. So when did it end? It ended February 1933 and was ratified on 5th of December 1933. The 21st Amendment repealed the 18th and so ended prohibition in the united states now after prohibition it went to a state's right issue in fact a small number of states remained dry for some years mississippi was the last dry state until 1966 
but there's still areas <clears throat> somewhere in, around the United States that are still dry. When I first moved to the area I live in, I live uh, in around the metropolitan Atlanta, Georgia marketplace. There were dry areas when I first moved here in the 90s. You could not drink uh, on Sunday. Well, a lot of those have been repealed because all this does is limit our choice. And, and people just, that's not what government should be doing. Prohibition is a case study in how government should stay out of our lives, period, end of story. It is also a case study in maybe how government should handle the war on drugs, but that's another story. So I hope you had fun with this episode. I had fun researching. I learned a lot, but there's one last thing that I want to end with here that I found that I had a misconception. Uh, Like many, and I asked, uh, like my mother-in-law today, do you remember the stories of how Joe Kennedy, this is John F. Kennedy's father, made his fortune? She goes, yes, bootlegging. Well, guess what? In researching this podcast today, that's not true. Joseph Kennedy did not make his fortune bootlegging. Now, he created a political dynasty in the Kennedys. You know, obviously, family's gone through quite a bit of strife. But to address just this, rumors have swirled for decades that Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, who, who, you know, President John F. Kennedy was son, he had Senators Robert and Edward Kennedy, uh, was a bootlegger. Well, it's not true. Now, he did make money in alcohol, but he was not a bootlegger. In fact, he made the majority of his fortune by buying an old movie studio and churning out B-movies that made him an absolute fortune. But he also made a lot of money after Prohibition by signing exclusive contracts to import expensive Scotch whiskey. So he was not a bootlegger. Now, here's the uh, biographer that researched this. This is a quote from him. As his biographer, I would have loved to have discovered that he was a bootlegger, says Nassau, is the biographer. It would have given me all sorts of great stories. I tracked down every rumor I could find and none of them panned out. It became really clear that all the stories about his bootlegging were just farcical. Now, like him, I would have loved to find stories where he was a bootlegger. Not a big fan of the Kennedys. I would have loved to be able to say, yes, he was a bootlegger. In fact, there are stories that in Detroit that he used to send Model A cars back and forth between Canada and Detroit bootlegging, and which was a huge point of, uh, of, of, of a huge point of entry for bootleggers because if you know anything about the area of Detroit, literally right across the river is Windsor, Canada, and it's not that far. The stories were that during the winter times, you know, the river would freeze up and the bootleggers would drive their Model A's over across the river. And allegedly there are tons of Model A's down at the bottom of the river from when these bootleggers were riding the ice and the ice would break. Uh, You know, folklore had it that Kennedy was running those. Not true. So myth debunked. Joseph, Joseph P. Kennedy was not a bootlegger. He did make money in the alcohol industry after prohibition by signing exclusive contracts to import expensive scotch whiskey from England, but not a bootlegger. Anyway, I hope you had fun with this episode. Uh, it was It's a blast to kind of go through this information. I've learned a lot. Hopefully, you learned a lot as well. Please contact us at uh, P- the PBL podcast at gmail.com. Tell me what you think about 
the podcast, uh, the article, the information. You can see the show notes at thepblpodcast.com and you can follow me on all of our media platforms. Uh, the handle is the PBL Podcast. Uh, I do a lot of TikToks every day. I'm on Twitter quite a bit. You can find me there. Uh, you can find some of my information on Facebook, Instagram as well. Again, the PBL Podcast. And of course, support us at patreon.com slash the PBL Podcast by buying a membership. And for your membership, you're going to get video of the podcasts and some other stuff that we throw in there as well so once again thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and remember drink responsibly since we're talking about politics and liquor today so have fun everybody <laughs>